Welcome to Strong Meat for Strong Believers. I'm Pastor Doug Johnson. I want to invite you to join me as we look at the issues facing us today and what God's Word says about them. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, Milk is for babies, but strong meat is for grown-ups who can discern the difference between good and evil. At the end of the broadcast, I'll tell you how you can get a copy of this message for yourself. And now, grab your Bible and get ready for another helping of Strong Meat for Strong Believers. There's so many different interpretations of the book of Revelation. Uh, you can research it and research it and find so many extremes out there. And you can find some that, that see it this way and some that way. Uh, you know, most people think the book of Revelation is about the end of the world. And parts of it is. Uh, but revelation, the word revelation means unveiling. Like uncovering a mystery. And the book of Revelation by itself can seem confusing, but if you understand the rest of the Bible, it begins to make sense. If you just take the book of Revelation by itself, it, it, it can be very confusing, but when you understand what God has in store for the future, then what we're going through today starts to make more sense. And so that's the purpose of why you would want to read through and even study the book of Revelation. Now, not everyone agrees with how Revelation is interpreted. I'll say this right here at the beginning. I am not the final authority on how uh, the book is interpreted. I'm just going to share with you what I have learned and how I see it, the way I see it, and we can agree to disagree at the end of the, at the, end of the day, all right? But uh, there are so many things here. But we're gonna, tonight we're going to cover the first two chapters, Revelation chapters 1 and chapters 2. Now, this book opens with a prologue, and the first three verses of this book is the prologue of the book of Revelation. So let's read the first three verses together. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. The first thing I want you to notice here is the very first words that John wrote in this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That right there is what, the, whole, what the, the majority of the book of Revelation is about. Even when you're going through the tribulation period, you're seeing the plagues and all these things happening, I want you to never get your focus off of Jesus because this is a revelation of Jesus. And I want to ask you here at the beginning, how do you picture Jesus? Well, when you think of Jesus, how do you picture Jesus? Now, this book is going to open your eyes to see Jesus bigger than you have ever seen him before. You're going to see him in ways like you've never seen him before. And John, as, we just, as we're getting ready to read in just a few minutes, John is getting ready to see Jesus in a way that he has never seen him before. And I want to tell you that no matter what you are going through or what the future holds for you, you must keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. So even through this study, I don't want us to ever forget about Jesus. I want us to keep our focus on Jesus as we go through this because that is what this is about, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as we also found out in these first three verses, Revelation was written by John, the beloved disciple. Now, he was, he's known as the beloved disciple because John was closer to Jesus than any other disciple. He was part of Jesus' inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. That was his inner circle of three. And even at the Last Supper, John was the one that was leaning on Jesus' chest. He, was, he wanted to be closer to Jesus than anybody else. He wanted, to, he wanted to go everywhere Jesus was, wherever he was, that's where John was. And I want to say this, God does not show favoritism to people. The Bible tells us plainly in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, for there is no respect of persons with God. So God does not show favoritism to people. However, those who want to know him more will receive more from him. If you want to know more of Jesus, you can know more of him. And so I want to ask you tonight, how close do you want to be to Jesus? Are you close enough to Jesus that if he gave you a revelation of the future, could you handle it or would it freak you out? 
How close? Because the reason I believe that John was given this revelation is because of the close relationship that he had with Jesus. And Jesus knew he could handle it, and so he appears to John. He could have given it to Peter. He could have given it to James. He could have given it to anybody, but he gave it to John. And I want to tell you something. If you desire to get closer to Jesus, he will show you things that other people won't see. He will tell you things that other people won't hear. Why? Because you determine, I want to spend more time with Jesus. I want to get to know more about him. Does anybody desire that tonight? If you want to know more, you can have more of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, verse 3 is also important. Verse 3 tells us that there is a blessing. How many want to have a blessing? There is a blessing to those who read this book. Now, Revelation is part of the Bible. It is one of the 66 books of the Bible, but you got to realize it is a standalone book as well. And when John wrote this, he wrote it not as part of the Bible. He wrote it as a standalone book. So when he says there is a blessing to those who read this, he's talking about Revelation. So we're going to get blessed tonight because we're doing, we're doing this. We're reading the book. He says also for those who hear the words of this prophecy and who keep those things that are written therein. Now the word keep in Greek. Now the New Testament was written in Greek and then King James had his translators translate it from Greek to English so we can have the English Bible today and I'm preaching from the King James Version. But So the Greek word for keep there in verse 3 is tereo. It means to guard against loss and it implies a fortress or a full military line of apparatus. So what John is saying is there is a blessing for those who read this who hear the words of the prophecy and those who keep these things written in this book like building a spiritual fortress around God's word and don't lose it for any reason. That's what God wants and that's what John's saying here. So not, don't just read through the book of Revelation but let's keep the, what we learn from this. Let's like build a spiritual fortress around what God speaks to us and let's don't let it go for anything because there's a blessing that comes to those who are willing to do that. How many are willing to do that? Amen. There's going to be a blessing come your way. Amen. Now look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now the first part of the book of Revelation is written to seven churches in Asia. They were real churches during John's time. So the first part of the book of Revelation does not deal with any future events. So we won't be getting into any of that tonight. However, we can learn some valuable lessons that will help us today by studying what Jesus says to these churches. Now in these verses we just read, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is introduced as the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Also, he's introduced as the one that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. My friend, the way you see Jesus affects the way you see everything around you, including your self-image. And that's why I asked you all ago, how do you see Jesus? Because you need to have a good vision of Jesus. And so I'll ask you again, what does Jesus mean to you? How would you describe Jesus to someone who's never heard about him? What would you say to them about Jesus? Because my friend, John begins this book by describing the attributes of Jesus and who he is. Look at verse 6. And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now John declares that we've been made kings and priests 
unto God. In fact, he says it again in chapter 5. And when we get to chapter 5, we'll go into a little more detail about what he's meaning there. But he repeats it twice in the book of Revelation. And I want you to know tonight, I believe John would want us to know, that you are not some lowly sinner saved by grace, but you've been adopted as God's child. And one day you're going to take your rightful place and rule by his side. My friend, no matter what the devil's throwing at you right now, the reason he's attacking you is because he knows deep down inside you're a king's kid. You've got, you're the next heir to the throne. You, God has made you kings and priests. Hallelujah. Before the Lord. Hallelujah. Now look at those. Priest and king. What does a priest do? Well, a priest represents the people to God. The priest also will intercede for the people. And a priest will minister to people in times of crisis. A priest is someone kind of like a, what a pastor does. You know, Jesus is our high priest. Nobody can take his place. He is the perfect high priest. However, there are other priests that are under him. And so we have been called as children of God to minister to other people in times of crisis. We are called to pray and bear one another's burdens and, and pray and intercede for other people. That's what a priest does. And so that's some of the things we can do as priests. Now, what does a king do? Well, when you're a king, <laughs> what you say becomes law. Now, we serve under the king of kings and the lord of lords. And uh, you can claim the promises of God. I want to tell you tonight... You are what he says you are. You can be what he says you can be. You can do what he says you can do. And you can carry out what he has decreed. Because he is the king of kings. And as a child of a king, you're the next in line to the throne. Amen. So you also have been made a next in line or a ruler by his side. And so as priests, let's minister the needs of those around us. Let's weep with those who weep. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice. And as king's kids, let's declare God's word knowing that his word is law. Hallelujah. Now, many people don't want to think about the end of the world because, you know, life is beautiful. There's a lot of things in life that is good. But when you look around the world, you also see a lot of hatred and violence and wars and troubles and trials come our way. And then you read the Bible, and you read how that Jesus is going to return, and we shall overcome. Hallelujah. You see, Jesus is going to return in the clouds, John said, and every eye is going to see him. No wonder John closes the book of Revelation with this exclaiming in Revelation twenty two twenty, Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. My friend, when you look at the world around you, and you realize that I, we've got something better to look forward to, we can say with John, Lord, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 8 of Revelation 1. Now Jesus speaks in verse 8. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Hallelujah. Now Jesus introduces himself now. John's been introducing him to us already, but Jesus now speaks up and introduces himself as the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. What Jesus is saying is that he is Lord over everything. The beginning and the end and everything in between. He's even Lord over time and space. He said, I am he that was and is and is to come. That means he is past, present, and future. He is Lord over time and space. He covers it all. There is none beside him, none above him. They're all below him. Hallelujah. That's who Jesus is. And that's why we need to have a good revelation of Jesus. We need to know who he is. Now verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now John at this time of his life was exiled on the island of Patmos living out the remainder of his days in solitude when Jesus appears to him and gives him this revelation that we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. Now listen to how John describes Jesus in the coming verses. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his hand, his right hand, seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. All right, we'll stop right there. Now, I want to tell you that John knew what Jesus looked like. Before his crucifixion, he spent three and a half years with Jesus, walking and talking with him, eating meals with him, ministering by his side. John knew what Jesus looked like before he was crucified, and he knew what Jesus looked like after his resurrection in his glorified body. John had saw both. So he knew what Jesus looked like, but my friend, he had never seen Jesus like this before. He said, I turned around. And I saw him standing there in the middle of seven golden candlesticks. And those seven golden candlesticks represent seven churches in Asia. John said his voice was like a trumpet and like many waters. He was wearing a golden girdle. And his robe and his sash were were like the garments that a judge or a king would wear. His hair was white as wool and white as snow. You know, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, called him the Ancient of Days with snow-white hair. His eyes were flaming like fire. You know, fire refines and purifies. So Jesus' gaze sees right through us, right into the very heart of who we really are. His feet were like brass. Bronze represents judgment. There was a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Guess what that is? That's the word of God. And his, he was shining like the brightness of the sun. Now, how would you react if you saw that standing in front of you? I mean, John had never seen Jesus like that. Uh, you and I, we might react the same way that John did. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. When John saw Jesus like that in all of his glorified honor and glory, he fell on his face like a dead man. I mean, he just passed out from the glory. But then Jesus touched him and picked him back up and strengthened him and allowed him to be able to see him in his glory. My friends, I promise you, when you see Jesus face to face, it'll change your life. That's why, my friend, no matter what you're going through right now in this life, it all pales in comparison to seeing Jesus' face. Hallelujah. You know, Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer who wrote, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. She was born blind. And one day, a man asked her, he said, Sister Fanny, I bet if you could ask Jesus anything and he would give it to you. I bet you would ask him to give you your sight, wouldn't you? And she said, young man, no, I wouldn't. She said, in fact, I have prayed and asked God not to give me my sight. He was stunned and he said, why would you ask God for something like that? And she said, because the first thing I want to see is the face of my Savior. Because I know that nothing on this earth can compare to seeing his face. My friend, she was willing to go through life blind just so the first thing she sees would be the face of Jesus. I wonder if you really want to know Jesus like that. Anybody desire to love Jesus and know him like that? My friend, that kind of desire is what God is looking for. People who want to know him more and more. Hallelujah. And John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And Jesus appeared in him. I promise you, friend. I thank you all for coming out on a Sunday night like this. The greatest thing you can do on the Lord's day is get in the Spirit and just focus on the Lord. Hallelujah. Because when you get in the Spirit and focus on the Lord and seek Him, He will show you things that other people wish they'd seen. 
He will tell you things that other people haven't heard. Hallelujah. And so John was seeking the Lord, and Jesus appears to him. Look at verse 18. Jesus goes on to say, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Jesus is declaring that he is God right here. Well, we've heard him already say in chapter 1, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is everything. Hallelujah. He is God Almighty. Now someone once asked, does Satan rule over hell? Well, we see here in verse 18, no, he don't. Jesus has the keys. Hallelujah. He has the keys of hell and of death. Jesus conquered them both. Praise the Lamb of God. Jesus has the keys. And my friend, that's why a child of God don't have to worry about going to hell because our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hell was only created for the devil and his angels. That's the only ones who were supposed to be going there. And my friend, if somebody goes to hell, it ain't God's fault. It's because they rejected Jesus. They would not repent. They would not ask him to forgive them of their sin. And they send their own selves to hell because of their rejection of Jesus. My friend, Jesus has the keys and he can set anybody free if they'll just call on his name. Now, if you're wanting to have, if you're taking notes and you're wanting to have an outline for the book of Revelation, you will never find a better outline than in verse 19. Verse 19 actually gives us a basic outline for the book of Revelation. Now, Jesus is telling John what to do, but this is actually a, a basic outline for the book of Revelation. Jesus says in verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That's a simple outline for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 of Revelation is what John is seeing with Jesus. He's writing down the things that he has seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that were happening in John's time, the things that are. Now, so John writes those things down. And then from chapter 4 through 22 are the things that will be hereafter. That's when you read about God's wrath being poured out for the sins of mankind. But also in the middle of that, you'll also see the mercy of God. And you'll see the gospel being preached in the middle of all that. Hallelujah. So right, so the Revelation chapter 1 covers the things that John has seen with Jesus. It's what we're reading now. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are happening at John's time. And chapters 4 through 22, the things that will be. Just a basic outline of Revelation. And then verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so the golden candlesticks represent the seven churches. The stars in his hand represent the pastors of those churches. And that is Revelation chapter 1. Now let's go to chapter 2 and we go into the message from Jesus to these churches. Now before we start reading the letters, I want to say this. There are four views that people have about the book of Revelation. There is the idealist view. That means those who have the idealist view state that Revelation is a general picture of the conflict between good and evil. It is a basic idea. It's an, that's the idealist view. It's just a, a basic picture of the conflict between good and evil. That's how they see Revelation. It doesn't mean anything more to them than that. The second view is the historist view or the historical view. Those who see the historical view of Revelation, they see the events of Revelation have already happened in church history. And so they explain that the things that have happened in Revelation have already happened in the church history, and that's how they see the book of Revelation. The third view of Revelation is, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but it's the preterist view. It is P-R-E-T-E-R. I-S-T, the preterist view. And what that means is they believe that most visions in Revelation happened in the first century under Nero and they are not future events. They say that everything has happened except for the final judgment at the end of the book. So those who have the preterist view believe that Everything has already happened except the final judgment at the end of the book, and that's how they look at the book of Revelation. The fourth view 
is the futurist view. Those who have the futurist view believe the prophecies in the book of Revelation will happen at the end of the church age in the future. So for the most part in this study, we're going to take the futurist view of the book of Revelation. If you have a different view of it, again, we'll agree to disagree, but that's all right. But let's learn together and then decide what you believe, all right? But for the most part, now, now as I just said a while ago in that basic outline, chapters 1, 2, and 3 have already happened, okay? That's not future events, and as we go through these, you'll see this. But there are some who view this as other things as well. And I'll try to add some of those things in there. I'll try to confuse you, but I will try to cover as much as I can. Now, the first three chapters of Revelation have already happened. Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, gave him seven letters to seven churches, and they all begin with a call for the pastor of each church to communicate the written words of Christ to their congregation. My friend, that is where revival begins, when the spiritual leadership of the church preach and teach the words of God. Not our opinions, not what we think about it, when we simply give the word of God. Evangelist D.L. Moody said this, and I quote, The best way to start a revival is to build a fire in the pulpit. Hallelujah. And how true that is. You see, God promises to bring a spiritual awakening to the church wherever his word is preached. And as we read through this chapter, I want you to notice that each of the seven letters ends the same way, with the same sentence. And that sentence is this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter ends the same way. My friend, revival breaks out when God's word is preached, heard, and obeyed. When we listen to what the Spirit says to his church, my friend, that is when revival comes, that is when his people come alive, and that is what we need to hear through this study. We need to hear the Spirit speak to us individually. Amen? Now, many churches today are just like the ones that we're about to read in Revelation. Uh, they do... <laughs> Some of these churches have a quite a resemblance to some churches today in the 21st century. I saw a bumper sticker one time. It's, it read, Jesus called. He wants his religion back. Because the way people are acting nowadays, Jesus wants, to, wants his religion back. Another bumper sticker said, help me, Jesus. Save me from your people. You know, I don't know if you ever felt like that or not, but I'm telling you, the way churches are today, it's, you know, it, it, it's... I know it's so far away from what Jesus had in mind when he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So what does Jesus think about his church? Well, that's what we're going to find out here in chapter 2. Now, the book of Revelation was written around 95 A.D. And we can learn a lot from Jesus says in these letters. Now, remember, Revelation is about revealing Jesus. Revealing Jesus. And each one of these letters, Jesus reveals something about himself to each church. So keep that in mind. Now let's begin reading. Revelation 2, begin with verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars. And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now this message from Jesus was to church folks, not to a bunch of heathens on the wrong part of town. Now I want you to keep that in mind. Jesus is talking to church members in every one of these letters. He reveals himself here in the church of Ephesus as the one who holds the pastor's in his hand and walks among the churches. My friend, there is no church, dead, alive, or lukewarm, that Jesus doesn't know about. 
And my friends, the ones that are alive and the ones that he is rebuking here in Revelation, he cares about them. He wants to send warnings. That's the great thing about our God. He gives warnings to his people before judgment comes. He tells them what we're doing, what they're doing wrong, and then gives them the way out and tells them how to fix the problem. Even when you read through the book of Revelation, the reason we have the book of Revelation today is because God told John, I want you to write this book and I want you to make it available to everyone who reads it so everybody can be warned ahead of time before it comes. Our God is a merciful God. Can I have an amen? He's a merciful God. Hallelujah. Now, Ephesus looked like the perfect church. I mean, look at their attributes. They had labored for the Lord with patience and perseverance. They avoided anything that was evil. They had exposed false prophets in the church and cast them out. They had been burdened down but kept pressing on without fainting. They had done all the right things, but they had forgotten God. How could that happen? They had lost their first love. Do you realize tonight that you can obey somebody without loving them? Happens every day when we pay our taxes. <laughs> We're obeying the government, but we don't love them. You know, it's just, you can obey somebody without love. And that's what the church of Ephesus was doing. They were going through the motions, but they had, they had forgotten their love of God. And so he tells them what to do in verse 5. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. You see, they were going through the motions. They were more ritual than spiritual. They had gotten into such a rut that they could do church better than anybody. I mean, they had, it looked like the perfect church from the outside. But my friend, listen to me. When your love for God fades, your love for people fades as well. And your love for the lost fades as well. Notice I don't, mention, I don't see anywhere mentioned here how that they were seeking the lost to be saved. Because you see, they had left their first love, God. And when your love for God fades, your love for people fades as well. Jesus warned them. He said that he would come quickly and remove their candlestick out of its place. Now think about that. What does a candle do? It gives off light in a dark place. This church had lost its light because it had lost its love for God. Listen to me. We can learn a lesson from the church at Ephesus. If that is happening to you, if you find yourself just going through the motions, just going through the rituals of church, but your heart is not really where it needs to be with God, Jesus said, repent and come back to him. Can you remember how it was when you were first saved? Remember how you were when you first got saved? It, it was like everything was brand new. You had a song in your heart. You felt like you could take on the world. The sky was bluer. The grass was greener. It's like, it was a, it's like your eyes were open for the first time. I want to tell you something. It wouldn't hurt any of us to fall in love with Jesus all over again. It wouldn't hurt us one bit to go back to where we were. And Jesus said, do the first works again. Come back to me, my church, is what he's saying. Now, for those who have the historical view of Revelation... They think that this letter to the Ephesus church also refers to the first century church from the book of Acts till about 100 A.D. Now notice now that Jesus, with every letter, he warns, he tells them what they've done wrong, he warns them, but then he also ends it with a promise of reward. Look again at verse 7. He says, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. My friend, the reward for them returning to their first love is amazing. Think about this. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve was able to eat from the tree of life. But when they sinned and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the forbidden tree. When they sinned, God put cherubims down with a flaming sword in front of it to make sure they would not come back and eat from the tree of life and live forever. And so the tree of life has been guarded since sin entered the world. In fact, it's actually been transplanted. It's been transplanted from the Garden of Eden from earth actually to heaven. You can find it in Revelation 22 at the end of the book. Revelation 22 verse 2. Let me read it to you. 
in the middle of the street, you know, the streets of gold of heaven, in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river of life was the tree of life. John got to see it. Hallelujah. Listen, it bears 12 manner of fruit and yields her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Wow. There is no tree like the tree of life. It is so huge. Did you notice John said it's in the middle of the street and on both sides of the river of life. That is humongous. That is a humongous tree. It's got 12 manner fruit. It's a fruit cocktail tree is what it is. Yeah. You, and it, it bears fruit every month. There's never a month that you can go where there's no fruit on that tree. It bears every month. And even the leaves on the tree can heal nations. My friend, everything about that tree is the tree of life. And Jesus said, if you will come back to me, come back to your first love, you will eat from the tree of life. Hallelujah. My friend, that's enough right there to motivate you to come back to your first love. Thank you, Jesus. And so if you find your love for Jesus waning, if you find yourself just going through the motions of church and ritual and you long to have that experience you had with God when you first got saved, come back to Him. Come back to Him. Hallelujah. Look at verse 8 now. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear with the Spirit, saith to the churches, He that overcometh shall, hurt, shall not be hurt of the second death. Now Smyrna was a city on the Aegean coast. Today it's in Turkey and the city is now called Izmir. The word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. You know, that's the spice that, makes you, that you may remember from the wise men's story. They brought myrrh to Jesus. Myrrh is a burial spice, and it was also used by the high priest, but it was mainly a burial spice, and it smells wonderful, but you only get that smell when myrrh is crushed. And so Smyrna is the persecuted church, living in persecution and affliction and even poverty. They were under persecution because they were standing for the Lord. And Jesus revealed himself to them as the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Remember, Jesus reveals himself in certain ways to each, each church. And Jesus said to them in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. In other words, Jesus saying, they can take your job, they can take your house, they can even take your life, but they cannot take your true riches because you are rich. Hallelujah. When Jesus says you're rich, honey, you're rich. And he ain't talking about earthly material things. And so Jesus, in this letter, he was encouraging the church of Smyrna, who was under great persecution, to hold on to their faith. He says in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now, those who take the historical view of the book of Revelation, they say that the ten days here may picture the ten waves of persecution that hit between 100 and 300 A.D. when more than six million Christians were killed. During that time, the Caesars of Rome persecuted Christians. They were burned at the stake. They were given to beasts in arenas for sport. They were, driven in to, uh, to, they were driven to live in the catacombs before, uh, below the earth. And so they were persecuted during that time. I, I have the futurist belief, uh, view of the revelation, but I also believe he was speaking to them. But also, And I believe when Jesus speaks a word, it can be for the present and it can be prophetic. And I believe it is prophetic, and I don't believe it just went away after 300 A.D. because the persecution of the church is still happening today. 
It is, in fact, if anything, it is greater today than it was even when Jesus spoke this in John's time. So what happens when the church comes under persecution? Well, amazingly, the church actually grows and the gospel spreads. If you remember the book of Acts, when Saul was persecuting the church, it forced the Christians out into the world and wherever they went, they began preaching the gospel wherever they went and that's what Jesus told them. He told them in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, that's their hometown, and Judea, which was the town next door, and in Samaria, which was enemy territory, and the uttermost part of the world. But from Acts chapter 1 up to Saul's persecution, they had stayed in Jerusalem. But when the persecution came, hallelujah, the church began to spread and the gospel began to spread as well. So I want to tell you from God's perspective, persecution can be a good thing. Persecution actually purifies and unifies the church. You know why? Because hypocrites don't survive long under the threat of death. <laughs> but genuine faith will stand the test. And so there are times when God allows persecution to come at times to strengthen the true believers and to weed out the hypocrites. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, and he said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, they would be absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. That's the three promises of Jesus to his followers. They would be completely fearless because the Holy Spirit. They would be absurdly happy because, uh, because when Jesus comes, he gives us life and life more abundantly, and that we would be in constant trouble. And yet most American Christians wonder why things are happening to them when trouble comes. Listen, friends, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. They hated me, they will hate you. Why is it that it catches us off guard and we wonder why? I'll tell you why. We've been taught and we've been lied to and, and taught that we are exempt from trouble, but my Bible never tells us that. Jesus said, you will be hated of all nations for my sake. That includes America. And he says, yea, all that live God in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what the Bible says. So my friend, when trouble comes, just grin and bear it. Know that you are rich. Hallelujah. You don't worry about what you lose on earth. Just keep your focus on what you've gained in Jesus and that Jesus is walking with you. Hallelujah. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and staff comfort me, is what the psalmist David said. You know, more Christians were killed for their faith in the 20th century than every century before combined. Persecution of Christians today is worse now than it ever has been. Persecution is rising against Christians. We're even beginning to see it in America now. And my friend, if you're being persecuted, stand firm for your faith. Jesus said, the reward is, I will give you a crown of life and you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Later on in the book of Revelation, it tells us the second death is the lake of fire. You will not be thrown in the lake of fire. You will not burn forever. You're going to have a crown of life. You just hold on to Jesus. Stand firm when persecution comes. Hallelujah. Because you are truly rich in Christ. Amen. So be encouraged tonight. Look at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against you. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, Will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. 
Now, Pergamos, again, these are real churches that were actually uh, real churches during John's time. And Pergamos is the compromised church. Now, notice Jesus reveals himself as the one which hath the sharp sword with two edges. He does that as a warning of what will happen if they continue to compromise. Now, Satan's home is not hell. Satan don't live in hell. That is the place that was created for Satan and his angels, but they haven't been cast there yet. Satan's home is not hell. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's roaming this earth as a lion seeking whom he may devour, the Bible says. And so Satan is not in hell. He's on the earth. So some people think, well, does he live in a particular area? Now, some people say yes, and they base that on what Jesus said in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. He said, I know your works. And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. And so they take that verse out of context to say, oh, Satan's seat, or his headquarters, was in Pergamos. No, that's not where it is. This verse does not mean that Satan actually lives in Pergamos. But what it refers to is the prevalent satanic worship that was happening there at this time. It was such, it, it was like, uh, it, it was like the, the headquarters, uh, if you would, or the point of contact there for Satan worship in that area of Asia. And so that's where Jesus was referring to. Now the name Pergamum means objectionable marriage. Objectionable marriage. And he says, he refer, Jesus refers to the teaching of Balaam. If you'll know, you remember Balaam. He was the, the prophet whose donkey talked. You know, remember Balaam? And the story of Balaam was King Balak came and he offered Balaam money to come and curse God's people. And so Balaam prayed about it and God said, no, you're not going to curse my people. And Balaam says, I can't curse what God has blessed. And so Balak the king tries three times to get Balaam to curse him. And all three times Balaam says, I can't curse what God has blessed. I can't do it. And so, but Balaam then, at the end of the story, most of us just read the story about the, the talking donkey part. You know, we like that idea, but we don't finish the story. If you finish the rest of the story, Balaam tells King Balak how to actually get the children of Israel to be cursed by God. And he tells him, if you will let your heathen women go and seduce the men of Israel, and lead them into fornication and adultery, they will turn their hearts from God to idol worship. And you can lead them away from God, and God will turn his back on his own people. And guess what happened? That's exactly what King Balak did. Even though Balaam didn't curse them himself, he came up with the idea and told King Balak to do it. And that's what Jesus is referring to here for the church of Pergamum. You know, and this is also because he told King Balak to allow the heathen women to seduce them and lead them to idol worship, and God actually turned his back on Israel because they turned their back on him. And Jesus, by referring them back to this story, he's telling the church of Pergamum, if you don't stop your compromising ways, I am going to come quickly and fight you with the sword coming out of my mouth. Now, again, what is the sword? It's the word of God. But he knows, he, and this is a warning to them, now notice this is also the second time that Jesus mentioned the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is the second time. He mentioned it also in the church of Ephesus, and now he's mentioning it in the church of Pergamum. Now some Bible scholars say that the Nicolaitans taught that it was lawful to eat things sacrificed to idols, and that simple fornication was no sin, just like Balaam did with the Israelites. Now some Bible scholars think also that the Nicolaitans could also mean power over the people because the word nickel means power and laity means the people. So power over the people. And so what, what some Bible scholars think is the Nicolaitans, not only were they leading them and teaching them to sin, that idol worship was okay, but they were also setting up themselves as rulers over them so the common people had to go through priests and bishops and popes to reach God. But the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God 
and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. You don't have to go through man to reach God. You go through Jesus Christ. You don't have to confess your sins to a priest. You don't have to confess yourselves to a, a prophet or a pope or a bishop. You can go straight to Jesus. You've got a straight line, prayer line, straight to the throne of God. Hallelujah. And so if these people were setting themselves up, saying you've got to come through us to God... That's kind of like what the Catholic Church is today, isn't it? And so that, also, that may be part of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I'm not sure if that's some of the things that some Bible scholars have said. Now, for those who have the historical view of Revelation, they say this letter to the church of Pergamos refers to the church age after 300 A.D. when a new Roman Empire rose under Constantine. Constantine decided that he would conquer under the sign of the cross and Christianity became the national religion and politics and power began to compromise the church. And suddenly, it was cool to be a Christian, but that can be a bad thing. Because when everybody is calling themselves Christian, you find a lot of hypocrites. And genuine Christianity becomes hard to find. And that's what we're seeing in America today. Everybody calls themselves Christians today, but not everybody knows Jesus as their Savior. And what happens is, you have a lot of hypocrites, and it's hard to find a genuine child of God. But I believe the people raving assembly of God are following God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can I have an amen? And if you're not, if you're compromising, Jesus says, come back to me. That's the message. He's saying, come back to me. You know, in Constantine's empire, there were lots of pagans who joined the church without actually changing their hearts. And what happened was they kept their pagan customs and holidays, but they Christianized them. And they're the ones who brought candles, lighting candles to the saints, uh, fasting for Lent, uh, celibate priests with high hats and all those things. You can't find that stuff anywhere in the Bible. It's all pagan customs and they brought them in. Household altars to pagan gods were replaced with altars to Mary or Christian saints. My friend, you don't have to pray to a saint. You don't have to pray to Mary. My friend, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. If you're praying to anybody, if you're talking to anybody other than Jesus, it is a pagan thing, it is a heathen thing, and you're compromising. And Jesus says, don't compromise. In fact, the bottom line is Jesus does not put up with compromise. He tells him in verse 16, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Listen to me. If you are compromising your faith, repent before it's too late. Be a true follower of Jesus. Take up your cross and follow him and him only. And here's the reward. Jesus said, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. We used to sing that old song, there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Well, can I tell you something? When you get to heaven, you're going to get a white stone with that new name engraved on it. Hallelujah. You're going to have a brand new name, a brand new body, in a brand new home, a brand new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. It's all going to be new. Hallelujah. So don't compromise. It ain't worth it. You don't want to miss it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody getting anything out of this tonight? Oh, hallelujah. Let's finish up the chapter. Verse 18 of Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, 
I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now Thyatira was the false teaching church. Now some say that Thyatira means continual sacrifice. Those who take the historical view of Revelation, they say that this church also represents the age of the Catholic church in the West and the Orthodox church in the East from the year 590 to 1517 A.D. Uh, Catholics hold Mass to be a never-ending sacrifice of Jesus' body, which is what that Thyatira meaning, continual sacrifice, means. But Jesus said when he was on the cross, it is finished. My friend, Jesus is not dying on the cross over and over again. He did it once and for all, and what he did was enough to satisfy God, who was a holy God. He said, it is finished, and Jesus paid the price. Hallelujah, once and for all. And notice here that Jesus reveals himself as he who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Remember, it means he who sees straight to the heart and judges the true intentions of men and women. Now this letter is a little different from the other ones we've written so far, read so far because this letter is not so directly charged to the church itself as it is upon some wicked seducers who were among them who were acting like Jezebel. If you remember Jezebel, or if you're not sure who Jezebel was, Queen Jezebel is the one who murdered the prophets of God. And in one occasion, she actually helped her husband, King Ahab, steal some property by falsely accusing the owner of cursing God. She actually arranged an inquisition to have the man accused and put to death, all just to take his property. That's it. She was a wicked, wicked woman. And Jesus says in this letter that he gave, he had given Jezebel time to repent, but she didn't. And so now he was going to judge her and all of her false teachers and throw them into great tribulation and even kill their children because they were teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. In verse 20, Jesus says, By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality. My friend, we're seeing that teaching even today. Even today, there's far too much sexual immorality in the church. From pastors to priests, even homosexuality is being, is being ordained in the, in the churches now across this land. And my friend, it all starts with false teaching. Every bit of it starts with false teaching. And Jesus said, I am going to judge it. My friend, if you're glad to be a part of a church that preaches God's word, you need to praise God for it because it don't happen everywhere. It don't happen everywhere. There are a lot of compromising churches, a lot of false teaching churches today. And he closes with the reward in verses 26 through 27. He that overcomes and keeps my works till the end. To him will I give power over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, it's interesting that we began this sermon tonight talking about ruling and reigning with Christ, and we're finishing this message tonight by talking about ruling and reigning over the nations. Hallelujah. My friends, listen to me. Don't give in to false teaching. Don't give in to false lies. Any false doctrine that comes along, I know it may sound pleasant. I know it may sound exciting. But listen, if you can't back it up with the word of God, you need to drop it like it's hot. You need to run from it. You need to flee from it because it ain't of God. Because the devil will mix just enough of the truth in it to make it sound right. But if it's a half lie, it's still a lie. And so in conclusion, the way you see Jesus affects the way you see everything around you, including your self-image. And I want to remind you that you are who he says you are. You can do what he says you can do. You can be what he says you can be. And what we can learn from this tonight is this. If you have lost your first love, repent and come back to God. God will restore to you the joy of your salvation. 
If you're compromising your faith, repent before it's too late. Be a true follower of Jesus. Take up your cross and follow him. If you're being persecuted, if you're being made fun of for holding on, for, for following Jesus, listen, stand firm for your faith because you are truly rich and you've got a reward that's coming. God is keeping good records. And if you're straying away from God's word, come back to the truth. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Don't, don't believe any false teaching. Let me tell you something. I, I know it's very, very easy to follow a prosperity gospel. But let me tell you, here's, here's a good way to, to see if something is a false teaching or not. If you cannot preach that same message in Ethiopia where people are starving to death... If you can't preach what you're preaching to Ethiopia or Africa or those starving people, if you can't preach to them what you're preaching to us, it's a false, it ain't the gospel. Stick to the gospel. Stick to the word of God. That's what changes people. It's what will save this nation. And it's what Jesus will bless. Hallelujah. This has been Strong Meat for Strong Believers. If this broadcast was a blessing to you, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at revivalfire29 at yahoo.com or call me at 964-5333 and visit Raven Assembly of God's website at ravenag.org and find out more information about our church. This is Pastor Doug Johnson reminding you to keep your head up. God is on your side. And join me next time for more Strong Meat for Strong Believers.